welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Food, gratitude, and the sounds of fireworks. It's not Thanksgiving or Christmas or the 4th of July, but the Bali, a Hindu holiday that marks the beginning of the Lunar New Year. It's celebrated by people of many faiths across South Asia and around the world. Here in the United States, that includes my extended multi-faith family. We celebrate. We exchange gifts, say a few prayers, and share a big family meal. Before it ends, though, we head outside to the driveway where we set off a few fireworks. Earlier in the evening, before the sun goes down, we line the walkways with small lights or votive candles or diyas. And the first time I joined, I asked a lot of questions because I knew close to nothing about its origins. As I learned more, I discovered those lights lined up on the driveway were intended to invite good luck and prosperity in the coming year. I also learned that the origin story, it varies widely across the subcontinent. But one theme emerges. Diwali is a celebration of the triumph of light over darkness. This year, November 4th, marked the beginning of the five-day holiday. And elementary school teachers back in the classroom now have a new illustrated book to share with kids, Vinny's Diwali. Readers meet an elementary school girl who is nervous and excited to share how her family celebrates this holiday. It's not about the origins, but rather how so many South Asian American kids actually celebrate. And it's written by award-winning journalist and adult fiction author Triti Umagar, who borrows from her own childhood growing up in India, celebrating Diwali. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Inspired. And I am looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for hosting me. So tell me, what drew you to writing children's books? It's a very different genre going from adult to a children's kind of board book with with beautiful illustrations. It is. It's a very different genre. And I've always said that in some ways, writing picture books is closest to writing poetry. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's short form writing. You know, a novel can go on for 300, 400, 500 pages. I mean, obviously, you're not going to do that with a picture book. And there's a kind of poetic discipline where the economy of language and words and, you know, every word, every phrase that you choose has to be chosen with care. In those ways, it reminds me very much of poetry. And at a very, very young age, when I first began to sort of, well, perhaps even before I thought of myself as a writer, when I was simply writing as a child, I wrote poems. I wasn't writing novels. I wasn't writing short stories at that time. I was just writing poems. Mm. So in some ways, this does feel different than what my career as an adult fiction writer has been. But in other ways, it feels like a throwback uh, to a much earlier time. And, you know, why do I want to write children's books? Because I really, really love kids. I just feel like they are my most favorite species on <laughs> earth, other than kittens and puppies, you know, but I, sadly, they don't read my books. So there's no point in writing them for kittens and puppies. But, and I feel like, 
you know, I want to, in, in at least in my children's uh, books, I, I want to spread a message of kindness and goodness and generosity and how being kind and being generous feels so wonderful. Um, you know, when, when light triumphs over darkness, which if you think about it, is what Diwali is all about, it makes us feel good as human beings. And what better audience to tell these stories to than to children, right? So other than Benice Diwali last year, uh, just by sheer good luck, I had, I think the very next month, last fall, I had two children's books come out. The other is called Sugar and Milk. And that's the story uh, where I just sort of update the legend that I was told about how my ancestors, who were from Persia, uh, came to India a thousand years ago and basically came as what we would today call political refugees mm. and were let in to India. And once again, it's a story about uh, wit. It's a story about, you know, quick thinking. Uh, but it's also a story about hospitality. It's a story about welcoming the stranger in your midst. Um, and both these books, in some ways, you know, I was not raised Hindu, but the India that I grew up in, the Bombay that I grew up in, was this beautifully secular, um, joyous kind of a place. And we most certainly never felt excluded from the Diwali celebrations. In fact, we were very, very much part of it. Uh, my father used to go out every single Diwali and buy enough fireworks to set off on the streets below, you know, below our apartment building. And he would invite all the neighborhood kids so they could be literally, you know, homeless street urchins who would participate and then there would be the residents of you know middle class residents of the buildings who would come down and we would all like have a beautiful evening together and nobody was thinking in terms of caste or race or religion or any such thing we were all doing this together and setting off these beautiful you know spirals into the sky um and those memories uh meant so much to me and I worry sometimes that perhaps those days of, you know, just being shoulder to shoulder with people who were different from you, but feeling so close to them that you didn't even perhaps really notice the differences. I fear that the spirit of those days might be coming to a close. And I just felt like I wanted to celebrate all of that um, in these two books that I did. Hmm. What era, what decade was that in? So I left India in the early 80s um, at age 21 to come to college um, in, in the United States. So, you know, really, let's just say perhaps from the time I was three or four years old, so that would be the 60s and uh, most of the 70s, um, you know, until I left in the early 80s, so all of the 70s, really, um, you know, we would we would do this. I mean, we would, I remember being six, seven, eight, 12, 14 years old, you know, distributing sweets and getting new clothes. And my father had his own business. He had a factory and we would always have a religious ceremony done for Diwali. Now, 
here's something that may not make too much sense to American listeners. So we were something known as Parsis, a very, very small minority group in India. So the people who would come, the priests who would come to perform the religious ceremony for Diwali in our factory would be Parsi priests. Mm. We didn't have a Hindu uh, religious ceremony. We wouldn't have known how to do that. But everything else, we just adopted the exchanging of gifts, the sweets that were distributed to you know all the other people in this area where the factory was, certainly the workers, you know, all of that. Um, then bringing some sweets home to distribute uh, to neighbors in our building. Um, all of those were Hindu traditions from Diwali. But you see how seamlessly, and honestly, it didn't occur to me how odd this was, that the actual ceremony was not a Hindu ceremony, but it was it was to celebrate a Hindu festival. You know, it's almost this like syncretic kind of quality that you're describing, a blending. And India is and and has been uh, a place where people from so many different traditions and even I think the misnomer for a lot of people is when they think, oh, is it Indian? And when you really dig into it, you can speak to this is just the different languages, the different cultural right. traditions, even within Hinduism, the significance of certain deities and the mythology that is very sacred to some is less pronounced in other parts of the country. And that was part of my own learning when I married into a family that's Indian and discovering kind of my own bias or notions is predisposed to a North Indian perspective and learning, well, wait a minute, that's not really reflective of other parts of the country. As As you're describing that Diwali ceremony, you know, I'm hearing in your voice an almost concern that 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 era, that spirit, that that camaraderie, that shoulder to shoulder embrace and acknowledgement of each's dignity and different traditions, that that is at risk now. The headlines are very different these days from India. Very different, very different indeed. And that's all the more reason to acknowledge that this world not only once existed, but can certainly exist today, not exist someday in the future. But if we if we choose it, it's just a matter of choice. You know, we, every culture, every civilization, including our own in the United States right now, I feel like we are at a crossroads here. And Indian society certainly seems to be at a crossroads also. You know, are we going to adopt the secular humanism of India's uh, founding fathers, you know, Gandhi, Nehru, all of them, right, that believed in this sort of multicultural, diverse, celebratory society? Or are we going to go for a more narrowly defined, punitive, right-wing, fundamentalist society? Um, Societies are always given those options. And I guess what the leadership chooses and then what the majority of people follow is what makes these determinations. And I'm very concerned. I mean, there seems to be some awful anti-Muslim backlash, very much sanctioned by the state that's happening in India right now. And it would be such a crying shame to lose what has not just recently, but really for thousands. I mean, the genius Mm. of India was, was its capacity to absorb multiple different cultures and and make them quote unquote Indian. And there was never a prescription that there was just one way of being Indian, much as 
there shouldn't be just one way of being American. As somebody who really has lived in two of the world's largest democracies at different points, I'm struck by how similar our pasts have been and how, in some ways, frightening our present and futures could be. I appreciate you reflecting at that intersection when you have lived in different parts of the world and immerse yourself in those cultures and understand the history. Sometimes you see parallels, you see these trends emerging that others may not recognize as similar because on their surface, they may feel different. And right. that's that's where the power of stories come in, at least for me. In Binny's The Volley in particular, what struck me is that through the eyes of a child of what it's like to go in and try to explain and celebrate something that may not be familiar to others. And I'm wondering if you feel like we have enough of those stories right now, especially as you're describing this crux that we're at, this intersection in so many countries where we're having to ask bigger questions about who we are. I guess my rather glib answer is no, we don't, because there's never enough Mm. of those kinds of stories. The world can always use and absorb more of those stories. I mean, children desperately need them, but I would suggest that perhaps as adults, we need them every bit as much also. We sometimes need to be reminded these fundamental truths. The story that I alluded to in Sugar and Milk, it's an old Persian Indian legend that I have sort of revived and modernized. This young girl who moves to what we imagine is New York City to live with her aunt and uncle, and she's terribly homesick. And her aunt takes her for a walk one day and tells her this story about being at home in a new culture. The fundamental truth of that story is about how to sweeten the lives. You know, just as sugar and milk Mm. makes the milk sweeter, acts of kindness, acts of generosity sweeten the lives of the people around us. And then one day I woke up and I thought, (laughs) the people who really need to hear the story our kids. And that day I sat and wrote Sugar and Milk. Triti Umargar is an award-winning author and journalist. She's written the children's books Sugar and Milk and Binny's the Volley, a story about the festival of lights sacred to Hindus, Jains, and Sikhs around the world. On the eve of Diwali, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, representing the 8th District of Illinois, introduced a bipartisan bill with 15 co-sponsors seeking to enshrine Diwali as a federal holiday. According to the Pew Research Center, less than 1% of Americans identify as Hindu. But in recent decades, the Hindu-American community has sought to increase its political visibility and engagement in U.S. politics. In an upcoming episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the issues that bring folks together and those that divide, both here in the United States and in India. But first, we're going to shift our attention to another faith community exercising influence in our politics, American Catholics. We're going to take a closer look at the issues that emerged during President Biden's private October meeting with Pope Francis. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi. 
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, something occurred in American religion that hasn't happened in almost 60 years. For only the second time, a sitting U.S. president who is Catholic met face-to-face with the Pope. I'm speaking, of course, of the 45-minute closed-door session between President Joseph R. Biden, the first Catholic president since John F. Kennedy, and Pope Francis at the Vatican, on October 29th. Biden's a lifelong practicing Catholic, and he's found himself besieged by the culture wars within the Catholic Church. In June, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the highest Catholic Church authority in the United States, announced the creation of a so-called teaching document. Its focus, politicians like Biden, who support abortion access and same-sex marriage. Both policy issues the bishops hold are in direct conflict with Catholic doctrine. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is responding to recent calls from some church leaders to use caution regarding Holy Communion and pro-abortion lawmakers. I think I can use my own judgment on that. There's no denying that there is some sentiment for a document that would address the president and other politicians who support abortion. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops says that should exclude the president from receiving communion. President Biden claimed the Pope provided his blessing. Are you concerned about the rift in the Catholic Church, and how do you feel personally about that? That's a private matter, and I don't think that's going to happen. I agree with President Biden that it's a private matter and that it's unlikely to happen given the views of the Obviously not a private issue because we're talking about it right now. When he receives communion, he's saying amen. He says, I believe with the Catholic Church. But when he writes executive orders from his own desk, he says, I don't believe what the church teaches about the most fundamental teaching of the church, and that is respect for life at all stages. 
The document, which the bishops are slated to approve later this month in Baltimore, would deny the president the Eucharist, the central sacrament of the church. Catholic doctrine teaches that the Eucharist, a paper-thin communion wafer, and a sip of red wine, literally become the body and blood of Christ. Denying a Catholic the Eucharist means to deny him or her the physical and spiritual communion with God. My guest today is Massimo Fagioli, a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. Dr. Fagioli is an expert on American Catholicism and a church historian. He keeps his eyes on the many ways Catholicism plays out in the public square. As the author of Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States, he had his eyes on the Vatican this week. As you're watching the events of this week, what stood out to you as two of the most powerful Catholics in the world met? What stood out was the immense gap that there is between the ways in which the world has looked at this meeting, two Catholic leaders engaged on some global issues like like climate change and fight against poverty, uh, COVID vaccines, but also some international flaps like, like China. And so that was the perception in the rest of the world and the United States where the conversation has been overshadowed largely by the issue of the tension between the West bishops and Joe Biden on the issue of communion. Uh, can a pro-choice politician go to mass and, and seek communion? And so this is something that has never been an, an issue for Catholic and non-Catholic audiences outside of the United States because nothing like that ever happened. And in the United States where there has been this focus, which is not new, it, it starts with John Kerry's campaign in 2004 when some bishops started. And so that has come back in a dramatic way because since the end of 2020, some Catholic bishops have tried to bar President Biden from receiving communion. And those bishops are still debating this document, which will be voted at the conference in Baltimore in the middle of November. So the most important thing is how differently Catholics in different parts of the world have looked at this. As you describe the mid-November meeting as context that's coming up where this resolution will be discussed, is that resolution one binding and does it have any historical precedent? The resolution uh, that the U.S. Bishop Conference will adopt will not be binding if it is about the permission or barring of uh, pro-choice politicians from receiving communion because in canon law of the Catholic Church and in tradition, it is up to the local bishop of this particular politician. So that will be, I think, a different kind of document which will be most probably on the Eucharist in general, but will send some other signals. Okay, so... But legally, there is no jurisdiction that this Bishop Conference has on that kind of issue. Now, historically, it must be said that this has never happened before. 
Most European countries approved laws legalizing abortion in the 1970s, 1980s. And in most of these countries, there were Catholics as prime ministers, as ministers of justice, of health, of, of interiors, and never, not one of them were subject to the treatment the U.S. bishops uh, would like to impose on Joe Biden. But at the same time, there's never been in the tradition, not even in the teaching or directives of the previous popes, anything that suggests that it is Catholic to exclude a politician that allows or legislates uh, legal abortion in his or her country. So this is something that is new. It is part of a drive of U.S. bishops in these last few decades, I mean, beginning with Roe v. Wade, and it has become accelerated in these last uh, few years because in 2019, U.S. bishops uh, who are looking forward to the election of 2020, they uh, adopted a document which said that for them, abortion is the preeminent issue, in quote. And so that has become a single issue Catholic teaching, which is significantly different from what um, all popes and the Catholic Church generally teaches on what are the responsibilities of politicians and of Catholic politicians towards the, the common good. When you hear the expression weaponizing the wafer, what does that mean to you? Well, it's one way to say they, they want to exclude someone from communion. Yes, it's yeah. uh, allowing Joe Biden to receive communion, again, is not an endorsement to the abortion policies of the Democratic Party is to protect the Catholicity of the Catholic Church. Because if the Eucharist is used to make a statement on a single issue religious identity, it will make this church even more sectarian. And Catholicism is essentially the opposite of sectarianism. That's why the Vatican is doing this. They have no sympathy for Roe v. Wade and all that stuff. But they know that if they allow that to happen, Catholicism will end up like white evangelicalism in this country, which means a pariah in the eyes of global Christians. That cannot happen. What I heard you say, and I just want to clarify, is that in 2019, when the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops, when they when they passed this document that declared that there is one preeminent political issue. What does this tell you as a historian of the church about the state of Catholic authority in the world today? This is very important, and this is a story that is full of, of irony. What happens after Vatican II is this. There's a push to reshape the concept of Catholic hierarchy in a sense that is less vertical and more horizontal, which means uh, also more, more authority for uh, local bishops and national bishop conferences. That push came in the 1960s, 70s 
especially from progressive theology, on the assumption that uh, a more localized uh, Catholic hierarchy would be more sensitive or more open to progressive issues. What happens in the United States uh, is the opposite in these last few years. So this has been the struggle uh, of American Catholicism, especially since the election of Pope Francis in 2013, because Pope Francis has reversed the assumptions that the papacy used to be identified with a more conservative uh, look on social issues and and local bishops with more dialogical or more progressive views. Uh, what has happened in the United States is it's the opposite. And so what has happened is that in this country, liberal Catholics are looking forward very much to hear every day from Pope Francis, from the Vatican, uh, hoping to be saved from a National Bishop Conference. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Catholics who didn't embrace the conservative theological views of Popes John Paul II and Benedict are now embracing openly the progressive theology and points of view that Francis is supporting, while conservatives reject those theological views. That's not entirely surprising, I have to say, but I do associate conservatism with embracing the authority, the fundamental authority of the institution and the hierarchy. Are you intimating that something different is happening now? Yes, but there's also this. that So what is conservative in the Catholic Church is also a certain way of dissenting from authority. Describe what that means. What does that mean when you say that? It means that you should say, I, I don't agree with what this Pope is teaching, but is uh, still my Pope. Now, what has happened in these last few years is a shocking similarity between what the Catholic right started to say very early on the conclave that, that elected Pope Francis in 2013, meaning it was rigged, it was fixed, it was a conspiracy, and what the same Catholic right has said on the presidential election of 2020, that uh, it was stolen, that actually Donald Trump won. So it's not just a coincidence, it's a similarity of the idea that if you disagree with the authority, uh, it's not a problem of reconciling your conscience or your behavior with what the authority says, it's, I don't acknowledge the legitimacy of this authority. This is something that we have seen very evidently, very clearly, among the same conservative camp in the United States immediately after Pope Francis was elected. And so that is an import of a political conservatism which is, is about expressing uh, anger and rage and generally uh, what is, is called uh, grievance conservatism. What I hear you saying is that if you want to understand what's happening in American Catholicism, you need to also understand what's happening in American politics and how identity and the relationship that people have to leaders that they do not 
not simply not like, but who they've gone one step further and chosen to view as illegitimate. In the political context, there's a lot of discussion about where this is going and real concerns about the potential breakdown of civil society. Talk to me about where the global uh, Catholic leadership is and where are the laity? Where are the followers? Catholicism now that it has become uh, a truly global church. This has created an identity crisis much more in North America than in Europe, which had given up on the idea of being associated culturally, politically with Christianity. Decades ago, Europe gave up uh, on that. America did not yet. And so this has created a situation in which the vast majority of Catholics favor of Pope Francis, but there is a small but strong, uh, vocal, very well introduced and very connected uh, minority of Catholics that uh, since the very beginning have been saying that Pope Francis is not really Catholic, that the conclave that elected him was rigged, that is trying to destroy the Catholic Church, these are no longer small fringes. I mean, when multiple voices airing these sentiments have their articles published in the op-ed page of the New York Times, it means that it has become something bigger. And then there's the rest of the world where issues uh, are much more immediate because there are Catholics that are... uh, under persecution, uh, they are under threat for climate change, they live in uh, collapsing democracies where their human rights are denied, and so on. Paradoxically, these furious reactions of ultra-conservative Catholics in this country have convinced the Vatican that the wisest thing to do is to a large extent to stop listening to them And it has been interesting to see uh, how in these last few months the Vatican has dealt with this. They have protected Joe Biden's access to the Eucharist not to endorse the abortion policies of his administration, but to protect Catholicism uh, from the ideological fury or, or from the zealots that are always bad news for real religion. That is what the the picture of these last 10 months uh, tells me, I think. Mm. We've been listening to Dr. Massimo Fagioli describe the tension between the U.S. Catholic bishops and the White House, where we have our first Catholic president since John F. Kennedy. In fact, American Catholics have hit a high watermark in American public life. Catholics now make up 29% of Congress, more than any other single faith tradition. And Catholics occupy five of the nine seats on the United States Supreme Court. That's an all-time high. But as Dr. Fagioli, a historian of American Catholicism, is quick to note, American Catholics are far from monolithic, and they can be found on both sides of every hot-button culture war question. Nowhere was that more apparent than at this week's Supreme Court hearing on Texas's new 
and Restrictive Abortion Law, SB 8. Several of the court's Catholic justices have signaled an openness to overturning the 1973 decision that legalized the ability of women to obtain medical services to terminate a pregnancy. But Justice Kavanaugh, who is Catholic, seemed doubtful of the Texas law's constitutionality. It could be free speech rights, it could be free exercise of religion rights, it could be Second Amendment rights. If this position is accepted here, the theory of the amicus brief is that it can be easily replicated in other states that disfavor uh, other constitutional rights. Meanwhile, outside the court, demonstrators from Catholics for Choice and the National Right to Life Committee, which has Catholic faith-based roots, faced off. Abortion is health care! Health care is a right! Abortion is health care! Health care is a right! We've been Dr. Fajoli, who is a scholar of American Catholicism, says much hangs in the balance in the struggle between the conservative and progressive branches of the faith. There has been in these last few decades uh, an incredible rise of Catholics uh, in Congress, in the executive, in the military, in the intelligence community, and in the courts, especially in the courts. The the conservative legal movement uh, has been successful because they have shown an institutional intelligence and and strategy that, and I say that in in my book, on the liberal, the progressive side, there has not been. There's been a naivete that and society will rule everything. Well, I don't agree. I mean, institutions still maintain a lot of power, and that uh, is eminently visible uh, in the courts and in the Supreme Court. The generation of the conservative wing within today's Catholic Church, it's an older, aging generation. What do you see happening among younger adherents. Is there a rise of a young Catholic right that is following in the footsteps of these American conservative voices who are questioning the credibility and the authority of the papacy? In the years after Vatican II, the assumption was that having a church that is run more by lay people and less uh, clergy meant automatically a more progressive church. That's not true because Justice Amy Coney Barrett is a layperson. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh is a lay Catholic. And so that doesn't mean anything in terms of their views on the church. So what is happening is this, that at large in, in the Catholic population, the conservative uh, wing is still a minority, but they are the ones who are more likely to join uh, the priesthood, to um, live a life of militancy and of commitment to the church. That is what we have seen in these last few years. Yeah, what I'm hearing you also say, in kind of intertwined with that, is that lay leaders who identify as Catholic, who are conservative, are not seeking to influence 
through the church per se, but rather through the state. And as you point out, the Supreme Court, but also elected leaders across the ballot from local school board members all the way up to elected leaders in in our U.S. Senate. I'm also hearing you say Vatican II not being the emphasis means that this divide between the personal and the private, the devotional focus, may attract and reinforce that personal focus uh, among a new generation of leaders within the tradition who have historically played a role in supporting the network of social service agencies that are affiliated with the church. Yes. uh, If you start saying or teaching to your young followers that Vatican II has been actually a tragedy because it led to to secularism and so on, well, much of what the church does in terms um, of collaboration with other secular authorities uh, for the common good uh, looks no longer legitimate. Mm. This is something, the same uh, care for the environment or creation uh, it largely makes little sense. Now, in some circles that are very active, Vatican II is no longer just ignored, it is bashed and, uh, and, and indicated as the culprit, the problem of the Catholic Church that we need to solve by simply uh, abrogating those teachings, beginning with, for example, the liturgical reform. Let's go to the Latin Mass, the pre-Vatican II Mass. This will have, or would have, enormous consequences on what the the Church does in the public square. Mm -hmm. You know, at the same time that you're describing this movement, I think of Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I'm thinking of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, one of the most powerful persons in the country. A week and a half ago, she participated along with many other Catholic members of Congress in a prayer vigil to support President Joe Biden's Build Back Better infrastructure deal, invoking over and over again, not secular ideals, but Christian scripture, her own citing her own Catholic faith. Where do they fit in? So you're right. There are Catholics uh, on the left politically that are not shy about connecting their political views with their faith. The problem is this. In liberal, progressive, uh, Catholic uh, thinking, the horizon of doing something that is political but is also for the church has become totally marginal. So here there are very little consequences or very uh, few ripple effects of what uh, Speaker Pelosi or AOC do on the posture of the Catholic Church. So here, what the, the right has been able and is able to do much better, in my opinion, is that they are ruthlessly engaged on social political issues, but they have maintained some kind of links uh, with the ecclesiastical institutions that allows them 
to have a continuing impact on what the institutional church is, what it does, and what will do. This is an asymmetry that is visible in many other contexts, but in this country especially. You're saying that individuals who are public elected leaders, like the president, like Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that they are talking about, they do invoke their Catholic faith, but they do it in a very personal way. They are publicly talking about it as animating why their values are rooted where they are, but they are not at the same time connected to and influencing organizations that are part of the church. And if they are, they're doing it privately and quietly. As we all know, there is a constitutional separation between church and state, yes, but there has never been a separation between religion and politics. Both sides, they have chosen issues on, on which they separate, for liberals, it's abortion. For for conservatives, it's immigration, for example. Okay. But here, liberals uh, have failed, in my opinion, to understand that there has to be at least the effort of investing on the institutional church. If you look at what kind of extremely wealthy Catholics are investing in education, in colleges, universities, think tanks, it's very clear that there is an, an asymmetry. That on the right, there has been much more investment than on the left. Mm. And so um, Joe Biden, as a Catholic, really is not as representative of the future of the, of the church um, as uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett could be. When you say the future of the church, you're talking, I want to be clear, you're talking about representing the leadership, not necessarily the followers. Or are you saying that that's going to be the new wave of adherence to the Catholic Church? So there's no question that the following or the membership of the church is changing. Many more Latino Catholics who are not conservative culturally and so on. But here we should be very clear on what we mean by leadership. So if we think of leadership only in terms of the bishops and the clergy, this is a very narrow understanding of leadership. So here leadership means, for example, um, the economic and financial elites, the political elites, the intellectual elites. In a church that is becoming smaller, those elites are not giving up. They are consolidating their power and they still have and will have a voice for a long time. So I'm not wishing that. I'm not happy about that. I'm just saying that we should be pragmatic because a certain emphasis on society could really give us uh, an illusion that demography is destiny. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, uh, here we all know that financial and political elites can distort wildly, and they are distorting widely, for example, the right to vote, 
you may be a population of uh, millions, but it just takes a handful of well-organized strategists uh, and donors and, and politicians to make millions invisible. This is something that could have happened or has happened to some extent already in the Catholic Church. So here elites are not just those who say mass. That is just the least influential of all possible elites in, in the Catholic Church, in my opinion, honestly. Dr. Massimo Fagioli is a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. His latest book, Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States, was published at the beginning of the year, near the inauguration of President Biden. That's all for this week's episode. Our show today was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Special thanks to MC Yogi for the music, for our theme, and a big shout out to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler. Folks, if you want to take another listen or find links to the books or conversation that we had today, head over to interfaithradio.org. That's our website where you can learn more about us, subscribe to the newsletter, and subscribe to the podcast. You'll get it as soon as it drops in the pod feed. While you're there, can I ask you a favor? Will you leave us a review and a rating? That helps others find us. I'm your executive producer and host, Umbreen Khan. I hope to see you next week. Friends, wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.